Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And today on the podcast, we are going to talk about de-dollarization, which is a scary term that uh, has been widely discussed recently, mostly with uh, you know lots of screaming and and you know gnashing of teeth. Um, what does the term mean, de-dollarization, and, and how would it happen? And, and can it even happen? Uh, to discuss this, I have a very good friend and a deep subject matter expert uh, joining us today, Andy Fately. Uh, but before we get into that, a word from our sponsor. Uh, this episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs. Simplify is a new ETF provider offering alternative investment strategies with full transparency daily liquidity, and low costs. Some of their hedge fund style strategies include managed futures, commodity trend following, steepener trades, and more. If you are an individual investor or RIA, you will likely find a compelling alternative investment from Simplify that can help improve your portfolio. Check out their website at simplify.us. That's simplify.us, and you can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. Uh, thanks as always to Simplify, and I appreciate uh, appreciate your patience. Um, obviously, the the sponsors would allow us to to bring this to you, um, and so uh, thank you very much to to Simplify. Okay, one more preliminary, uh, and that's the trivia question. My guest can help me with this one, and we'll answer it at the end of the pod. And here is the question: It it kind of harkens back to my last guest who talked with us about insurance. Um, so here's the question. You know the insurance company Allstate? You're in good hands with Allstate. It's one of the most famous slogans of all of advertising. And the question is this. Allstate was founded in 1931 as part of what iconic American company? Don't answer that yet. Don't answer that yet. We're going to answer that at the end of the podcast. Or you can answer that. If you're listening, you can answer that. Okay, so now for the main event, we're going to talk with our guest, about de-dollarization. Foreign exchange movements are very important to inflation guys, as you might imagine, even more so in other countries because international trade in the U.S. makes up a smaller portion of GDP than in, you know, for the United States than it does for, say, Germany. So it's an important topic. Um, it's not something I've ever been particularly strong in. Uh, and so to make help us make sense of it, I have my go-to guy on foreign exchange issues, uh, and that's Andy Fately. Andy is a 40-year veteran trader and analyst of the FX markets, good friend of mine, uh, and 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 really is my go-to guy. If I if I can't remember which way, you know, I'm going, if I say I'm buying the euro, you know, Andy is the one that I call to make sure that I'm doing the, the right direction. Uh, and we've we've also even co-written a paper before on central bank digital currencies. He's very deep in the in the crypto space as well. Um, and then, like I said, he's my go-to guy on FX. He's also known in the markets as uh, the FX poet. Uh, for many years, he's written a daily note that begins with a limerick or other poetry based on things actually happening in the markets, which is amazing to me because uh, you know every day to produce you know a written. Piece of prose is hard. Written poetry, I can't even imagine. So he's an, he's an interesting guy. So, uh, Andy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Mike. I, I'm, I appreciate being here. Well, all right. So, can you help me first by fleshing out your background, the the, the brief background I, I gave, and and by letting our listeners know how we met, worked together, and you know, giving just sort of the you know the background as you see it. Sure, be happy to. Under the under the rubric of be careful what you wish for, you just may get it. <laughs> I, I got involved in the foreign exchange markets uh, after a summer job between my junior and senior years in college hmm. on a trading desk and decided instantly as soon as I opened the door to a trading floor that I was going to work on a trading floor. Went back to college, took international finance classes, learned about the foreign exchange market. And I said, this is going to be perfect. I'm going to get into foreign exchange. And that was 44 years ago. <laughs> and here I still am in foreign exchange. So you got to be careful. Um, I had initially wanted to be a trader. It's all I really cared about. I was a trader for a long time, traded uh, spot foreign exchange, 
which is sort of the price you see on the screen, forward foreign exchange, which is really it's a financing tool. It is a very common product that's used for hedging by corporations, by uh, institutions when they've got exposures in foreign uh, assets or liabilities and options. Uh, in fact, my master's thesis was a pricing model for foreign currency options, which mm. I really hurried to finish before they actually started trading on the Philadelphia Stock Exchange in uh, early 1983. Um, and of course, because I was simply an MBA student, um, I was not published. However, the oh. Garmin Colhagen model, which is the basis for pretty much all foreign exchange trading op uh, options trading, um, it was exactly what I put together. Um, so I got it right. I just am not important enough to have been, like I said, MBA students don't get published. Um, professor, finance professors get published. But that was all fine. Got to work. Um, went to work at a, a number of banks. I've worked for foreign banks. I worked for U.S. commercial banks, U.S. investment banks, uh, banks, uh, Swiss, Canadian, British, Japanese banks um, across the spectrum. Very What's the interesting the 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 interesting thing is while they all do the same thing when it comes to foreign exchange they all do them really differently. Hmm. So, anyway, we met uh, at Barclays. So back in I joined Barclays in the beginning of '98. I'm not sure when you joined. I'm gonna say it was it was not far from then. I think you it was were beginning in 2001. I think. Okay, so uh, it was downtown. Yeah. I remember because we hadn't moved up uh, moved to Midtown right. through 9/11 yet. Um, so I was hired as a trader at Barclays. I was trading FX options there. I actually started up their emerging market currency options business and was trading that during that period. And then subsequent to the Russia default, so October of 98, when Russia defaulted, the little known thing, people talk about how dollar yen has moved. Dollar yen had two consecutive, I think they were 12 standard deviation movement days in a row. <laughs> Um, which I guess theoretically should not have happened in the universe at this stage on a statistical <laughs> basis. Um, and yet there you were. Uh, implied volatilities exploded higher and we did not get a single client inquiry on the desk. Hmm. And I asked the gentleman who ran the room, I said, does anybody talk to our clients about options? I just had the most extraordinary move arguably in the history of the options market and nobody asked the question. Hmm. And they said, no, we really don't do that. And I said, well, geez, I would do that. And that's how I started the process of moving over to coverage and wound up, as it happens, covering corporate America for the ensuing many years, um, And uh, which turned out to be a good thing for me because what I found out was that most of corporate America didn't really understand how to manage their risks. If they figured them out, they didn't really get the whole risk management aspect. And my role became as an educator. And I educated my clients how to manage risk, um, what to do, what the different tools they could use, um, and when they were good to use and when they didn't work and how market pricing could impact them. And that's how I've made my career. You know, that's really interesting, that that last piece, because it's very uh, parallel to, to sort of, you know, me and inflation and in that, you know, educating and helping risk management for people who don't necessarily understand what their exposures are, how they can hedge them, how that there are instruments out there that they, that, that can help them. Um, it, it's just that you've been more successful in, in, uh, in teaching that than I've been, been successful at, at teaching inflation, but, but it's very interesting that, that um, you know, we did have that, that parallelism in our, in our careers. Um, and, uh, and I'm, I'm very glad that I, I've, met you in that I've known you for the last quarter century, because now I can ask you the in question, the question that's on everybody's mind, which is what's de-dollarization and, and, and why is it, um, uh, you know, what is the, the threat, uh, the, what the effect of it would be is or whatever. And I guess we should start by defining what the heck is de-dollarization. How would you define it? And, and what is the, the nightmare scenario that people typically throw out in the usual uh, bear porn stuff? It's very interesting to me because this story has recirculated over my 40-odd <laughs> years in the market. Every time there's any protracted, protracted dollar down cycle, 
this is one of the things that happens. And as you go back to your international finance books and they talk to you about how a currency's value adjusts based on the current account balances and flows driving that. And when a country is in deficit, its currency will weaken until those flows can balance, whether they're trade balances or current account balances, uh, investment flows. And, and the truth is that for a lot of countries, that's very true. If you look at Brazil or Turkey or Mexico or Korea or almost every emerging market, inflation numbers and current account numbers matter a lot to the market. They tend to be, especially the more open the economy, the more they matter, because what will happen is that those flows will drive changes in behavior, uh, both domestically and internationally, and the, the currency is, is the re release valve. So it's not that surprising, um, and you can point to it. Uh, you, you can look at, um, I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, the number of times you would see a surprisingly large negative uh, balance of payments or trade number from some country, um, some emerging market country, and the currency would fall 2%, like immediately. Um, okay, so like, so, so just to, to be concrete here, so Mexico reports a big trade deficit, which might happen if, um, if uh, I guess, oil prices plunge or something. Right, right? exactly yeah. right. Oil prices fall, their, their, their exports sink, and then the peso will weaken accordingly, Got it. right away. Like it, mm -hmm. it's not like it's a it's not like it takes two years for the peso to respond. To <laughs> it. Like it, it takes two minutes for the peso to respond to that. Uh -huh. And and that's and why is that? Again, it, that is the market literally. That's international financial textbooks working in 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 front of your eyes. That is how the market adjusts the price of the currency because for Mexico to be more competitive. It, if, if it's going to have a trade deficit, Mexico can't afford to run a trade deficit because nobody buys embonos. Um, they can't finance themselves in that manner. And therefore, a weaker currency is the only way that they can put themselves in a position so that their, their exports become more competitive. They sell more stuff. Their trade balance goes, goes back towards parity or, or positive, And therefore, they can pay their bills internationally. So- it, it's it's not a it, 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 the finance books are right to I mean for for a lot of the world so so, so it, it doesn't work quite that way for us and is that because we have some sort of outlet valve I guess right so well, I mean that is it it doesn't work that way in fairness it doesn't work that way for any of the really the major currencies so it clearly does not work that way for the dollar it doesn't really work that way for the euro. Um, the yen, um, after that, well, the renminbi is pretty restricted. So, or the yuan, whatever you want to call it, China's currency is, is a restricted currency. So its movement is orchestrated by the People's Bank of China, their central bank, much more than it is by markets moving it based on flows. Mm -hmm. um, so, but that's really the difference is that when a currency becomes weighty enough so that it has many more things other than simply its trade balance as the driver as to why people choose to own it or not, then the trade balance just diminishes in relative importance and therefore the impact on the currency for a surprise in either direction is significantly reduced. So for example, yeah. So for example, if you're a, uh... A, uh, a safe haven currency, for example, right. that that you know something crazy happens in the world and it doesn't matter what the trade deficit number that came out today was. Everyone wants to flee to the yen. Correct, correct. So I, through my career, I will tell you that, like right now, although I guess CPI is is sort of taking usurping the mantle of NFP. So the payrolls data was the big data point for a long time in, in the FX market. People held their breath into the payroll number. And if the number was high or low or whatever, let's talk about pre-COVID. Um, that was the number that mattered. But if I go back early in my career, when Paul Volcker was Fed chair, M2 was the number mm -hmm. that mattered. 
because that's what they paid attention to. And so it was released, if I'm not mistaken, that Thursdays, it, it was at 4 p.m. And then they moved it to 4.10 because they wanted to release it after the stock market closed. It's fully closed, yes. And and right, and all the options had closed and everything like that. And so the I just like on trading floors all over the world, the when the big numbers coming out, there are desk pools as to what that number will be. And everybody puts in 10 bucks or 20, whatever the number is. And whoever's closest wins the pot. Um, that pool was on M2 uh, mm-hmm. when I first started. Mm-hmm. Subsequently, uh, during the Reagan presidency, well, that was during the Reagan presidency, but, but subsequently in, in, in the wake of the, uh, the Plaza Accord, when the, uh, the U.S., you may, you may or may not remember voluntary import restrictions by the Japanese or voluntary export restrictions by the Japanese autos because they were selling too many Japanese right. cars in the U.S. The big three were getting killed. And that's when Honda was the first to open, and I think in Marysville, Ohio. Um, but then Nissan and, and uh, Toyota obviously opened factories all throughout the South to build cars here so that they were no longer exporting. We were importing them directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at that point in time, the trade balance was the number. Friday morning at 8, well, at 8.30, the day it came out, it seems to come out on Friday morning a lot. It wasn't, I don't think it was technically that way. It just seemed to work out that way. So again, 8.30, uh, the trade data came out. And if there was a significant deficit, then the dollar would fall. If it was a, a you know, if it was less of a, it's always been a deficit. Um, like <laughs> right. In my career, I've never seen a surplus. So <laughs> the question was the magnitude of the deficit versus what the expectations were. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, I would say post the GFC, is when we moved to NFP, um, the non-farm payrolls number, which is of course the first Friday of every month. Um, I guess there's the, some exception where it can be the second if the first is the Friday or something like that. Yeah. The, it moved to that and that became the data point that mattered and everybody was focused on that and, and that was the driver. And so it, it did drive markets, but I think it had a bigger impact on bond markets. It had a bigger impact on the equity futures sure. markets. Um, it had to be really remarkable to move the dollar a lot. Uh, the, the dollar and trade, um, I, I think you mentioned earlier, I think the numbers I looked up, trade as a percentage of the U.S. economy is like 12%. Just yep. as an example, I right. just remember this off the top of my head. Trade as a percentage of the Dutch economy is 137%. <laughs> Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So yep. the trade balance isn't that important to the dollar's yep. value because it's just not that big a portion of what yeah. we do. Yeah, it's a lot of dollars, but we have a lot of dollars. Correct. So, yeah. Correct. So anyway, so so I feel like that's the like that's how you know there's this implicit belief that this is what matters. And of course, we've been running trade deficits. I think since 1975, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we've been running budget deficits since. Well, so during the Clinton years, I guess we got 1998 through like 2000, 2001. We had very modest trade surpluses um, after uh, the contracts with America, et cetera, uh, forced the the change there, um, and then we went right back to deficits. And those deficits, of course, are growing, arguably exponentially at this point in time. So we run a huge government budget deficit. We run a huge trade deficit. It's got to get funded somewhere. We have a large cop- capital account surpluses, right? That's the Yeah. Answer. So, so let's, let's go through the mechanics there. And then, and then again, I want to get to sort of the disaster right. know, case here or whatever, but, but so, you know, the, 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 those two sort of have to be tied together, right? We sort of have to tie our trade deficit and our, uh, and our, our budget deficit sort of have to be tied together because, because, well, I, I mean, you can describe sort of which direction the causality runs, but it's, you know, at, at some extent, if you have a, a large budget deficit, it's got to be funded either by domestic savers or foreign savers. Right. And the question is, the question I've always had is, well, does that mean, you know, fortunately for us, those foreign savers happen to have a lot of dollars and they can go buy our stuff with, which one leads which one well I mean, you know I, I think that's actually I, I think that's actually the kind of the crux of the of the situation right the issue is that I I, I don't remember who said it I, I it was I did not come up with the idea but basically other countries around the world make stuff 
and we make dollars and we <laughs> give those dollars to other countries and they give us their stuff and they take our dollars. And that's kind of, it's by far our largest export is, is dollars. The, Seems like a good deal because it costs right. very, very little to make a dollar. You know, it's, it's, it is, I, I've seen this because the, the Austrian camp hard money guys are, you know, we're going to destroy the economy. And the, the contra is, what are you talking about? This is the best deal ever. We give them paper and they give us stuff that we need. Like what could be, what could be bad about that? Uh, and of course that has, that's the way it has worked for a long time. Um, and the question becomes, as in all of sort of everything, it just, as it builds on itself, it just becomes, to, I think it, the, the concern now is, is this reaching a point where it is no longer sustainable? Yeah, I, can a tree grow to the sky? And exactly. It's, yeah. the, not Ben Stein, um, Herbert Stein, right? <laughs> Something that like, I always think of him as Ben Stotter, but <laughs> exactly. so Herbert Stein's famous comment that if something can't continue forever, it won't. Um, and so, right. And, and I think that is the genesis of why we're getting so much of this dollar de-dollarization um, discussion. And I, you know, I, I had written a piece uh, back at the beginning of the month and I copied one, two, three, four, five, I think it's eight or nine headlines here that were just sort of typical of what this conversation or what's how this conversation has been going. So I will read them and I, I will put them in the show notes. I'll give them to you so you can, yep. I, I honestly don't know which sources they're from, but they're all legit headlines from major media sources. Russia embracing the Chinese yuan for much of its global trade. Saudi Arabia considering invoicing oil exports to China in Yuan. France buying gas from China in Yuan. Brazil and China agreed to, agreeing to ditch the dollar for bilateral trade. BRICS countries, and for everybody who doesn't know, the BRICS countries are Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, uh, plan to develop a new reserve currency. Kenya promising to ditch the dollar for oil purchases. ASEAN members discussing dropping the dollar for cross-border payments. So ASEAN is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. It's a club, I don't know, whatever. It's kind of like a, an OCC, uh, what do we call it? OCDC club, but for emerging markets in Asia. India settling some trades in rupees. So those are the sorts of things that- drive, Andy, this sounds you know, disastrous. This sounds exactly. horrible. What, <laughs> what, what's going to happen to the dollar if no one needs the dollar? Andy, what's going to happen? What's the so, fear? You know, it's, it is, it's funny. And, and we have talked about it a little in the past. And, and one of the things that I think is very true is that it's very easy to look at these headlines and get, nervous about, oh my God, the, the you know, the, the world is ending, the dollar is going to collapse, no one's going to want the dollar. And then if you ask the question, and okay. If they don't, and if they don't take our dollars, that means they don't send us stuff. Right. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's the essence of the problem, yeah. right? Right. We've gotten very used to trading dollars for stuff. Um, but if you ask the question, okay, what will they do with all the dollars that they currently have. And, and I actually dug up some data for this. Um, because you're prepared. I Andy, I'm not, I, I can't have you if you're gonna if you're gonna be prepared. <laughs> makes you makes me look bad. No, no, it's just it's just <laughs> it, it's, the, the numbers are staggeringly large. And it's part, the big part of it is because it's all in the trillions. And so we don't right. So so it's hard for us to get our head around what a trillion is. So global GDP. Okay, the product of everything in the world in every country, the World Bank's estimate for last year was $104 trillion. Okay. Um, US GDP was 25 trillion of that. So we're kind of running at a quarter. I think Chinese GDP is 18 trillion. And then like number three, who is probably still Japan, is like three trillion. Right. Right. I, I think it, I think that's the way the number. So it like it really falls off once you get past two. Um and total debt. Okay, so here, so, so, but this is really the issue. So total worldwide debt is $305 trillion. Oof. So the world is 3X leveraged. Okay, hey. so I don't know. So, so it, it, 3X leverage, I guess, would be kind of a triple B 
credit. <laughs> and the world, the world at large is triple B credit. Okay. Sure. That makes sense to me. That makes sense okay. to me. But on the other hand, you know, leverage is great. I mean, we love to, we love, you know, nice levered, uh, you know, tech companies. Right. So exactly. You know, as long as we're, as long as, as long as we have gains, leverage is good. So global equity market cap, $109 trillion. Okay, so 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 the Buffett indicator, right, which is market cap divided by um, is is market, market cap divided by GDP, right? That's the Buffett indicator is mm-hmm. basically one oh two, okay, one hundred and two percent on a global basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real crux of it is that the debt numbers are the real key: two hundred and thirty-five trillion dollars of debt outside the U.S. So you've all heard about that we've got 31, right? The debt ceiling is the big topic right now. $31.4 trillion is the debt ceiling. And then if you add up the rest of the uh, the debt in the US that's been issued by corporates, by banks, by blah, 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 all of that stuff, um, the total comes to about $80 trillion, okay? Um, that means the world has a lot of dollars debt. And, and that's really the key, okay? Why is that? So, so let's go back to a second because so you mean things- you mean that the 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 world outside the U.S. owns uh, a lot of not owns it issues it too like yes, they, right. they issue it and they own it okay it. they issue yep. it and they own it and and here's here's the thing is that let's th- let's talk about the dollar as a reserve currency okay and I think one of the mm-hmm. things that, that is happens a lot is a conflation between the reserve currency and a reserve asset mm-hmm. okay. Uh, a reserve currency is the currency that nations own because, I mean, for three reasons: they need to, they they need to, they have trade, international trade, so they need to hold it to pay for their bills. Um, a common way you hear about it is they have three months of FX reserves or a year of FX reserves or whatever it may be. The Asia financial crisis in 1997 was caused by a lack of reserves, and so what happened subsequently. When all of that ultimately shook out, all the Asian countries that were part of that, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, India, Korea, Taiwan, pick your country, China, um, they stockpiled reserves like there is no tomorrow. So they all have massive currency reserves. Um, so, And we really don't hear about that, actually, until they start to get low. You, you, hear, right. Right, you, you hear them in the emerging, emerging economies in South America, whatever, like... You know, it is. Remember this: that so a quick statistic right now. The last the the IMF COFR data they call it um, showed that the dollar represented just over fifty nine percent of the total reserves FX reserves around the world. Now that number has fallen from like sixty two percent. So that three percent is a lot, Um, but. The next largest is the euro at like twenty three percent. So, so, so countries have to own dollars if they're going to do business in dollars, mm-hmm. right? That's um, exactly correct. Okay. And and that's the other issue is that what? So, if you listen to the right, if you think about the headlines that I read before, they were all China is going to trade in yuan, uh, Russia is going to trade in yuan, Saudi Arabia is going to trade in yuan, France is going to trade in yuan. All of these people are going to start to use the yuan instead of the dollar, right? So there will be less demand for dollars. Um, so, and if they do that, there will certainly be somewhat less demand for dollars. Mm-hmm. So, other little key numbers to remember in the foreign exchange market, which remember is the largest market in the world, BIS, I think it was $6.5 trillion a day on average of volume in foreign exchange across the different products. Um, 85 or 88% of every of all the transactions have the dollar as one side of the trade. Mm-hmm. So a lot of dollars trade every day. That's why the FX market is what it is. Uh, the, so for countries need dollars to trade with them, but countries need dollars because they borrow in dollars. So why do countries borrow in dollars? Well, because it's the only currency where they can. It's where the liquidity pools are. It's where the asset pools it's are. Where, it's because everybody has dollars. Exactly. So, so I actually just looked up before to, to solve the number. Um, 
countries have issued $23.5 trillion in debt or had $23.5 trillion in debt, recently issued dollar debt outstanding. Um, they have to service that debt. So a strong dollar is a problem for them because if you're Indonesia and you have you know, $10 billion of dollar debt outstanding and you're paying, let's say 5%, so you've got to pay $50 million a year in interest, well, you need to have $50 million. So $50 million in rupiah, now rupiah is 15,000, so it's a lot of rupiah. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bad, a bad. <laughs> we, don't, um, we don't have to be that precise. Right. So <laughs> is 75, 75 right. billion rupiah. And if the rupiah weakens more, then maybe it's 80 billion rupiah or 90 billion rupiah that you need to generate domestically so that you can service your debt. Um, and, and so that's kind of one of the big issues. So a weaker dollar helps everybody around the world uh, because doesn't cost people as much to get the stuff. Virtually every commodity is priced and traded in dollars. Obviously, these headlines are showing that there are countries that are trying to get away from that. Um, Russia, for obvious reasons. Um, China, because, again, not surprising. China is, there's a lot of friction between the U.S. and China right now. No shock that China doesn't want to, quote, help the U.S., with respect to paying its bills, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, but the other thing is, and that goes back to the amount of dollar debt that's around the world, is that if you're an FX reserve manager, okay, so you work for that, you work for SAMA, the Saudi Arabian Monetary Authority. Okay? Mm -hmm. These are guys, they sell oil to everybody. It's 36 million people live in, in Saudi Arabia. The, the amount of oil they sell, they, they can't spend all that money, physically can't get it. <laughs> Um, so they have excess reserves. And of course, the whole petrodollar story is that they, they agreed to buy treasuries with them at the time. Um, great. If they stop buying treasuries, what are they going to buy? Mm -hmm. And that is one of the key issues that, in my estimation, will prevent all of these things from having a substantive impact on the dollar's status within the world in terms of the concept of reserve currency. Now, is the treasury bond going to remain the reserve asset? They're $31 trillion outstanding. All right, so the Fed owns $6 trillion. So there's $25 trillion outstanding. <laughs> um, there's not $25 trillion outstanding of anything else. What, mm -hmm. are, what are reserve managers going to buy? Crypto. Right. 25 so, trillion of crypto. So, listen, you know, I, I was listening to someone and they made a very interesting point. They said what, what people are concerned about, and I think rightly so, is that assets that, right, what we see as the debt problem, we have too much debt here. All the holders, for them, it's an asset. Yeah. So they have credit risk, right? So how do you, like, what asset is available that doesn't have credit risk? And arguably, right. the only one is gold. Right? right. I mean, gold doesn't have credit risk. Gold is just gold, um, and which is why people, you know, like the, the gold bugs are like all a, a Twitter because they think that this is going to be their chance for gold to go to 10,000 or 20,000 or 50. I mean, kind of all real assets, though. Right. I mean, it's, right. you know, it's silver true. doesn't have credit risk. Platinum no, doesn't correct. Any doesn't asset. have credit right. risk. Copper, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Oil doesn't. But there's a big difference between gold and silver and oil because oil is consumable. And gold right. is not, right? right? So you can have oil and then you can run out of oil. But if you have gold, you if you hold it, then it's always going to be there. Diamonds, property. Yeah, the problem with property right. is you can't, you know, and actually that was, that is what, what Japan did with a whole bunch of its surpluses, right? Uh, back in the, uh, in, in the age was they bought a lot of American property. They did. They, 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 they Rockefellers and they paid the top. So, and if you so go back to the Weimar hyperinflation and the first effort that they tried to end that process was they were they they were going to do a, a, essentially a land bank and have a land backed currency. Yep. Um, I can't remember what the the term was, but there's some term in German to to say that. So yes, you're right. Property, real assets don't have credit risk, but real assets are not fungible. They're not liquid, and if you're a reserve manager. It's you can certainly put some there, and you've seen last year more gold was bought by central banks than any other time in history. I don't know what the number was 150 tons or 200, some number like that. Um, so 
clearly they're looking at ways to diversify, yeah. but it's well. So I mean, it seems like this the dollarization is really it, it's sort of um, it's sort of two different things depending who's talking. One is that you know one is the, the you know the global reserve currency, the global reserve you know the the benchmark, and there's sort of a fin de siècle you know, notion that if it's not in dollars, then we're no longer top dog and it's sort of the end of the American century and all that mess, which is, you know, I think an interesting psychological uh, thing to worry about, but but financially that doesn't have any impact, right? I mean, the real question, you know, I guess is, is, you know, and the other thing you hear a lot is, you know, China. What happens if China sells all all of the all of their U.S. bonds? <laughs> so I I love that question, and I, I, I <laughs> tell I, me, I do. tell I, us, Andy. I've heard it. So the, the assuming they could, okay, right. assuming they could, because they have I don't know, let's call it they have nine hundred billion in bonds, so it would have a pretty big impact on the market. But again, the, the question becomes: they sell their bonds, then they get dollars. So now what do they do with their dollars? They've got to buy something with them because there's no sell them, Andy. They're going to sell the dollars. Just sell them. Okay. And, and, and that's fine. They'll sell their dollars. What will they get? What's the other side of the trade? Are they going to sell their dollars and buy Apple stock? Are they going to sell their dollars and buy gold? Are they going to sell their dollars and buy euros? Euros, Andy. (laughs) Right. Okay. It is <laughs> hard to believe. Okay, maybe it, it, it's it's not really viable. And, and the other problem is if they sell their dollars for another currency or a range of other currencies, currency, whatever, yeah. then um, then the dollar is going to really fall dramatically. Like they would have that would have a very large nine hundred billion dollar one way flow would have a very significant impact on the FX market. And I think that's the real fear, right? So that's the disaster that people seem to be. Part of it is. The dollar is going to collapse because China and whoever everyone's right. going to ditch the dollar. So right. what's that do? It's, it's, and and that's to me that's that's the least the least likely outcome because Why what would happen is the renminbi would strengthen dramatically. So the renminbi is roughly seven to the dollar right now. So let's say it goes to five. Okay, so that's a 30 percent adjustment. All of the stuff that we get from China would become a lot more expensive instantaneously. And we wouldn't buy it, number one. Number two, China continues to run a mercantilist economy. Their entire economy is based on build stuff and sell it overseas and collect overseas reserves. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the consumption portion of the Chinese GDP is it might have gotten to 50%. I thought it was still in the 40s. I don't know. It's, it's around there versus the US is at 70 something mm-hmm. percent. Um, so at five double O, then Chinese people would find the rest of the world would seem very cheap to them. But boy, would that turn around the Chinese trade surplus, which is enormous. Mm-hmm. Would that turn around um, the Chinese manufacturing process, which would get crushed? Um, the CHIPS Act, right, was recently passed because we want to, we need to support U.S. chip manufacturers, semiconductor manufacturers to prevent um, the Chinese from getting things and want to bring more of it home. We don't want it in Taiwan. We want it here. All of that stuff, you would need a law to have that happen because every company would go, yeah, okay, China is really way too expensive. So where can we do it? We can do it home for much cheaper. And I think that that is it's just a non-starter. The Chinese would not shoot themselves in the foot for spite. They may do many things. They may hate the U.S. They may, all of that may be true. But the one thing that I think we can be pretty confident in is that they're not going to hurt themselves to try to hurt the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that would not be a winning move. Um, and and you know the effect on the U.S. obviously would be very inflationary for us, but also would be highly expansionary for us because, like you said, we would suddenly get cheap compared to everybody else. Right, the economy would boom in ways that we've never seen. Um, and which, by the way, 
you know, and if we're exporting way more than we've ever exported, then suddenly our trade deficit goes away. Right. Right. And so, you know, it doesn't strike me as necessarily a, a bad outcome other than the inflation. The inflation would kind of suck. But of course, you know, the, the, but the Fed could drain dollars. And that, that was the case. Right. In theory. So in theory, um, in, in theory I mean, <laughs> no, you know, no real in, history of that. But yes, <laughs> I mean, you know, in, you know, in theory, the the you know, the the uh, the Treasury could go, you know, could intervene in the in the markets and buy all those dollars and, and you know, you know, right. give them to the Fed to whatever. So, yeah, you, no, know, true. you know, the, you know, it, it's dealing with like, inflation I, in, in a scenario like that, where you would have, I would expect a significant rise in nominal GDP. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so obviously inflation would definitely pick up and the Fed would be able to address that. But I think that it would be relatively easier to tighten monetary policy in that scenario, given the other natural drivers of nominal GDP. And therefore, we wouldn't have the employment issues like the that unemployment yeah conundrum question of, you know, would unemployment skyrocket because of, like, I don't think that it would happen. Um, (laughs) And the U.S. would become like it would it would make itself. China would inadvertently arguably make the U.S. the place where everybody wants to put their capital because growth would be high. Rates would be going up um, and there would be returns, real returns. So so in other words, all the people who say that if there's de-dollarization, it would make us an emerging economy. You know, we turn into just an emerging market again. Are right, and that's awesome. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I think it could be a big benefit for us. I, I think it could. So uh, I'm cheering for de-dollarization. Then I think. Well, you know, there's the mean, downside here. <laughs> the, the other, there are. Remember, so so this is the economic slash finance of the question. There are other things that are involved, um, and I'm certainly not privy to it, but I'm aware that you know the. I mean, let's talk about, at least this is from what I've read, my understanding, the freezing Russian assets in the wake of the uh, the Ukraine invasion, mm-hmm. okay? The Fed did not want to do that. They, they were categorically, yeah. no, no, this is a problem. The Treasury didn't want to do that. Janet Yellen did not want to do that. The CIA wanted to do that. Hmm. <laughs> um, and apparently that was where the call was. They made the case... Um, and the Defense Department said, this is what we need to do. Um, so there are obviously non-financial considerations that go into how things work. But, but here's another aspect of it. Um, I, think about, I think about the way China has evolved since Xi Jinping has become president there. I, well, I'm sorry, ruler for life there. Um, and, you know, when, uh, when Deng... Xiaoping opened up the Chinese economy. And then when they joined the WTO in 2001, um, they embraced capitalism in a very significant way. And it was, it did what capitalism does. It, it expanded the economy dramatically and it lifted hundred, literally hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And the people in China are much better off than they were prior to that. But the constraint, if you're an autocrat of capitalism is you lose control. And losing control is something that Xi Jinping is very clearly not comfortable with doing. And my belief is that he, that, you know, he's kind of, all right, we've gotten kind of far enough and everything going forward is going to be, we're going to run the show again and put, you know, and and make sure that we get our strategic, our long-term strategic goals, like that's our goal, not, you know, the people doing better. Um, it is, I think you can tell the, the, the digital yuan, the, their central bank digital currency, which they're very clearly rolling out, this whole concept of social credit scores mm. and things like that. I mean, that's all part and parcel of the same thing as part of a control issue, which then takes me back to something I mentioned before. So if Saudi Arabia, all right, looking at invoices, oil in chi- exports in China to in yuan, okay, great. Mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia runs about a $25 billion annual trade surplus with China. One of the few countries that runs a surplus with China. Obviously, they can't buy enough stuff to offset the oil they sell. Um, So after a couple of years, they'll have $50 billion. And then they'll have $100 billion after four years. 
And the question is, again, what will they do with all that yuan? Because so let's assume the Chinese don't sell their, their dollars and the yuan stays at seven. Yeah. So after four years, they've got 700 billion yuan. Are they going to buy their Chinese debt is very limited. Like Chinese government debt mm -hmm. is, is very limited. Are they going to buy Chinese local government debt, like like levered munis? That doesn't feel like something they want to do with their reserves. Um, do they want to play in the Chinese equity market, where um, where you know they, Xi Jinping has proven he can come out and say? educational companies are doing the wrong thing and they need to, you know, like <laughs> we, we have to stop that. It's not fair and drive the values down. And if they're in the wrong sector, then the value of their assets collapse. So, so, here, so here's the thing. And China has been buying up gold like there's no tomorrow. Can the Saudi Arabian monetary authority go to the PBOC and go, Hey, we have all these one. Um, we'd like to convert them to gold, please. Will China say no problem. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't even give that a vanishingly small probability. I'll go right to zero. <laughs> yeah. I'll go right to zero as a probability on that. Um, it is not convertible. There is, the Chinese have adjusted the Shanghai Commodities Exchange where you can trade oil for gold directly, which means that you've taken the step of putting oil to dollars and dollars to gold out of it. But it's not the PBOC that's the gold that you're getting. It's the Chinese, the Shanghai Commodity Exchange. It's whatever gold they have there. And if you sell a lot of oil and want all their gold, if they don't have gold, then you can't get it. The PBOC yeah. is not going to back it up. The country is not going to back it up. The, the convertibility, the, the concept that the yuan would be gold backed. Um, I, hey, we have 8,000 metric tons of gold in Fort Knox, I believe. That's the number. The dollar's gold back. Right. On, on that basis. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, that's, I mean, it sounds like the sort of the upshot of this is that sort of the disaster, you know, scenario that we worry about is not something that can happen overnight. I mean, just, it just can't happen in a short period of time. I, I agree. I think that's exactly correct. I, I understand the, the concept. I know that countries, especially because the U.S. has weaponized its financial markets, it's weaponized the mm -hmm. dollar, it's weaponized all of these things. Um, and it's it's selecting winners and losers, which every country wants to do, and they're all annoyed that the U.S. can. Um, yeah. it, right? I mean, that's pretty much the way it is. Um, so to me, I, I get the argument sure. that why countries want to do it. The problem is there's sort of no alternative. Tina is the sure. issue. Well, and that's, I mean, you know, I can imagine that it is something that, you know, the the sun can set on the dollar empire, but it's over 25 years. It's I over, would say it's longer than that. Yeah. I would say it's longer than that. I, I, I Especially think, if we keep running massive deficits. Right. And I, giving I, more I think, dollars to people. I, I think that it would be, inside 50 years, I would be, it would be yeah. incredibly surprising if the dollar was, so where are we now is 2023 and 2075. It would be incredibly surprising to me if the dollar was not still the global reserve currency. Well, I'll have you back in 2070 and we'll just, we'll give a, we should give make a it up, so long. update on that. But I, you know, I think, um, look, I mean, the, the, the bottom line for all this is, especially things that happen slowly is that the answer from our perspective is to get your own fiscal house in order, get your own policies, your domestic policies in order. And the international stuff will you know, you've, it'll, 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 if you're going to be a leader 50 years from now, it's not because China today decided that they were going to let you be a leader. It's because you made the right decisions, you make the right industrial policy or monetary policy, and you don't, you know, gut out your entire, your entire economy. It's not because, you know, some, you know, evil overlord overseas decided that they're going to, you know, destroy their own economy by trying to destroy yours. But right. No, no, I agree. I think that's very true. And I think that we didn't discuss, and I'm certainly no expert on it, but I think demographics is also another mm. really important feature. Fair. Um, you have a Chinese, the Chinese nation, which is, has a shrinking population. Yeah. And I don't know. I saw the estimate that by I'll say 2050, the, the 1.3 billion people they have now is going to be somewhere like 850 million. Mm -hmm. um, that's a really really big difference. Yeah. What does that say for what their economy is going to be able to do going forward? 
um, and then the, the what tools they may or may not have to be able to affect whatever policies they want. Well, look, we um, we're running out of time. Actually, we've probably long since run out of time. But whatever. I mean, it's 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 kind of as long as people will will listen. I guess is is this. But anyway, I hope you can come back another time. And um, you know, uh, I I do like uh, addressing bear porn and 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 explaining why it's never as bad as all the people were shrieking about. Uh, well, almost never. <laughs> but but before we we let you go, uh, tell me, you know, what you're working on these days. Anything you want to pitch? You know. Uh, charity that you're contributing to, whatever, whatever you want to do. Here's your so, time. So, you know what? Um, and then I got to ask you the answer to the trivia question, but yeah, yeah. I thought about that. I, I cannot, I, I do not know the answer to that question. <laughs> so um, my, my, my blog FX poetry has been kind of uh, stagnant for a while. I mm. expect to start it up again. Um, actually next week um, is what I'm planning to. And that's fxpoet.com. fxpoetry.com. FX, fxpoetry.com. Yeah. So um, I subscribe, I, so I don't actually go to the website very often. FXpoetry.com. Yep. I, I am, um, I'm on Twitter. So I'm, I'm the FX at FX underscore poet. Remarkably, somebody was FX poet before I got there 10 <laughs> years ago. I was a little confused by that. So I had to put the underscore in there. It all works out fine. Um, and uh, so I, I'm, I'm looking at that um, and I'm, you know, I mean, after my 40 odd years in the market, I'm evaluating what it is I want to do going forward. Um, like I said, I do enjoy the writing um, and helping helping companies. I'm looking at ways to to put myself in a position to be able to work with companies as they think about their risks. Look, um, I, I, the, I, look I can endorse you. I, I think that I can endorse both the, the FX poetry part of it, but also I think that you obviously... And for the last hour, you know, we've sort of you know, shown that that you've got an awful lot to offer in in this uh, uh, in this area. So um, uh, I'm, um, you know, good luck, I guess. Thank you. And you say you don't know the answer to the trivia question. I do not. I do not. Okay. Know. So 1931. It's like yeah. GE or something. I, I, I. That's not terribly terribly far off. But so because it is a consumer oriented companies. So, um, and it's an iconic American company. Allstate was founded in 1931 as part of Sears. Sears Roebuck. Sears Roebuck, which yes. is long gone, but Allstate's still there. And that is interesting. So I, I, I learned that fact as part from a recent podcast Ted Sides did uh, with Annie Duke talking about Annie Duke's new new book. And and, and she pointed out, and it's, it's about quitting. And uh, and the interesting part was Sears sold off a number of really successful businesses and then collapsed <laughs> by keeping the part that they should have gotten out of a long time ago. Anyway, very interesting. So, Andy, thanks again for coming on here. Um, that's all for today's podcast. Please like, subscribe, refer others, write a review if you are so moved. You can contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. Subscribe for free to the blog at inflationguy.blog. If you want to subscribe to our quarterly or to my private Twitter account, go to inflationguy.blog slash shop and use the code podcast at checkout to get $20 off a subscription. And uh, most importantly, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. <laughs> <laughs>